It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Academic, an investor, board member, and global healthcare operator and strategist, a former nurse. She is now a managing partner at Letter One Group. Um, and just in case, I'm going to kind of uh, preemptively warn everybody that we both have dogs, so there may be some barking involved. Megan Fitzgerald, welcome to the show. Hey, Bert. Nice to see you. And that's right. It's a dog's job to bark. So thank you for the service announcement. That's it. Well, you know, you're right. Uh, a lot of people always like to hush their dogs. It, it's, you know, it's really their only job is to bark. <laughs> yeah. And you're now in their work environment. So what do you want? Yeah. What do you want? I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> All right. So, well, let, let's jump into this because your background really is in nursing. And so tell us how you went from nursing to uh, investor to board member to best-selling author. Talk about this. Oh, that's nice. The best-selling offer. Maybe after this, after this show, I'll be a best-selling author. But <laughs> I started out, you know, young. I was a lifeguard. I was an EMT. I always liked emergencies and taking care of people. So it was pretty natural uh, to go to nursing school. And I tell people sometimes what you do in college, it doesn't have to be what you do for the rest of your life. You major in accounting. You got to be an accountant. And so for me, I I didn't think I'd be a nurse forever. I love the skills and the art of healing and taking care of people. But as I did that, I also realized I like to take care of lots of people and populations, which is why I went back and got a few degrees in public health, ultimately a doctor in public health. And now I teach at the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. But really, I started out in nursing and trauma and then moved to working uh, in dialysis clinics. And that took me to Tucson, Arizona, where I worked south of the border down in Nogales. Uh, and I began to help build dialysis clinics on Indian reservations. So there was a pivot in my career and a change in my brand where I went from being a clinical person uh, to being a manager. And that was a tough pivot, but I did it. And after that, I basically entered... Uh, the Fortune 500 of healthcare, and the rest is history. I love it. I love it. Yeah, Nogales, uh, man. Not not too many people know about Nogales, man. That's well, like uh, you. yeah, you're the first. <laughs> Nothing down there, but I used to see coyotes on the way to work, the big telescopes, uh, and then some occasional cattle until yes. I, until I got to the reservation. So beautiful but difficult terrain. So uh, an interesting place to work young in my career and a very special place to work. I worked on the Tohono Odom Indian Reservation and some of the most magical and amazing people live there and a special place in my heart for them. Absolutely. I tell you, if, if you have not visited an Indian reservation, that is part of American history that a lot of people forget about. You know, you kind of glance over it a little bit and in what is it, junior high or maybe high school history, but really go down there and it, uh, I, I always find it amazing. It's, it's just, uh, it is a magical place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Inspiring. Yeah. All right. So tell us about your book, uh, Ascending Davos. Uh, tell, tell us about the title and talk about the book. Yeah. So obviously we're ascending. So you're trying to climb. And I think, you know, a mountain is symbolic of many people's life journey and certainly their career. So I tried to take uh, the reader 
uh, through my trials and tribulations as I ascended my own Davos. And even last night, teaching my last class at Columbia, we dedicated uh, the final class to ascending when they graduate, because you can imagine graduating from school right now is, is a pretty surreal time for students. But Davos is also where the World Economic Forum is held. Uh, which is an extraordinarily special meeting. I was lucky enough to be a member uh, and a panelist and someone that got to attend for a few years. And really attending that meeting was one of a few special moments in my career where I technically felt like, wow, I've arrived or I've made it. Um, it kind of pulled together all of my academic experience, all of my business experience. And I had a chance to be around some really smart people. So I often, you know, ask people, what are you ascending towards? What are you climbing towards? Recognize that you're going to take a windy path. You're going to fall down. You might be sucking on oxygen. You may spend a night in base camp, but what is the summit for you? Um, and then how are you going to get there? So it was a metaphor, the title, and a lot of people picked up on it. Some people had no idea, like my mom, what it meant. And I had to explain it. Sure. Sure. All right. So in this uh, journey of yours, what was the I guess, call it pivot or the moment or the transition. How did you transition from, you know, being in the front line of patient care? Here you are, you're, you're doing uh, uh, emergency room, you're doing, um, uh, what was the other thing? The, the, the Indian uh, reservation, dialysis. Dialysis. Yeah. Uh, so you're basically on the front line of patient care to where you're at today. Yeah. So it took a lot of pivots, honestly, Bert. I mean, going from clinical to business and then business to strategy, strategy to president, president to private equity investor, and then board member and academic, it really was oftentimes taking the job no one wanted, taking a lateral. And people don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear bad job and lateral. But sometimes you're told or you know you need to pick up different skills. You need to pick up finance skills, leadership skills, marketing skills. You're not always going to get those in a promotion. So I was pretty clever to always think about a job in terms of who I was working for, what experience I was going to add to my CV and resume. And I also tried to work on the most important things in a company. Where was the sun? And was I involved in things that really mattered in the organization? Because one, it gave me visibility, but two, it also gave me a seat at the table and some recognition. So when bigger and more interesting jobs were open, I was around the hoop. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And you know what? I think it takes a very confident, uh, patient person to say, hey, I'll take that hard pivot. I'll take that job that nobody wants. And the great thing about taking the job that nobody wants is that the people that matter most are watching how you handle that job that nobody wants. Yeah, they sure are. And and, and if you if you and if that's a successful uh, result, then man, I think it. You know, they they're going to shower praise on you because they know that you can handle it. You also get street cred, right? So yes. when it comes time for the job between Meg and Bert, and Meg took the job no one wanted. 
you know, management remembers that. They remember yes, that you are, uh, you know, you're building resilience and that you didn't always take an easy path. Uh, no one wants you to really be their first failure. So if you took jobs that were difficult, by the time you get to the more senior jobs, you have pattern recognition. You've been there before. You know how to handle a crisis. Um, you're not used to things being easy for you. So right. it all builds character and leadership. And I look for that in people that I hire. I want to know that they took uh, the path less, you know, chosen and that it was tough because I know that I'm dealing with someone that's not going to, you know, freak out when the first thing goes wrong uh, with the customer and they know how to handle things. That's also a bit of emergency medicine. You know, a lot of people that work uh, in the ER on an ambulance or on a flight helicopter, you're, you know, you're kind of trained to deal with the worst case scenario. So yeah. you're, you're wired that way. And I could tell you things in corporate America were not as bad as what happens in an ER. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the other thing is that they know that you're not ego driven. You're you're either result driven or team driven, right? You're you're putting your needs aside to take care of what the company needs now. And let me tell you, most people are not willing to do that. They're not willing to put their ego aside. They're not willing to put their their quote pause their their corporate. Uh, ladder climbing to take this odd job thing. So to me, it speaks volumes. Yeah, I think you're right. People used to say to me, you know, what have you done for shareholder value today? So every day you've got an ability to leave the day and the assignment better than when you found it. You do you do that enough, you're going to get the top job. All right. So let me ask you this, because you did a survey uh, specifically, you, you conducted a research study on the health of executive women Talk about this. What were your findings? Yeah. So I was really curious as women ascend, there was enough data to say, oh, only, you know, less than 10% of CEOs are females, or we all know that data. We also know the pay parity data. So I was curious to look at it from the health angle that as you ascend, and by the way, this can apply to all executives, male and female, as you ascend and get more power and more responsibility, do you do that while trading off your health? And so I wanted to study executive women to find out as they ascended and made more money, uh, did things uh, on, the, on the side of their health fall apart? And what I found was a little bit paradoxical. First, I found out that most senior executive women have good health and you should not be surprised. They have health insurance, they have disposable income, and most of them are educated. So they know that they need to go to the doctor. However, I noticed in the data that 48% of the women I studied could not see a doctor due to workload. So they were missing mammograms, they were missing appointments, they were too busy taking care of their job and their family as head of the household that they weren't taking care of themselves. Uh, a quarter of them used sleeping pills to go to sleep. 19% said their pet was their best friend, Bert. So they came home at night at nine and guess who was waiting? The dog, the cat, the fish. Right. And so it really, begged a discussion that should we care about executive health? And since I've done the study, I can honestly say, I think executive health's become really important, especially with the younger generation. They want to pick flexibility. They want to pick experiences. Uh, there's a sandwich generation. Many people working are now taking care of little kids. They're also taking care of senior parents. So yes. imagine doing a job and you have a mom with Alzheimer's and you have a child that's, you know, three years old or you have a school age child now that you have to help homeschool. Oh, right. So I think it's affecting everyone and they want to know work. What are you doing for me? So I tell people after you get your title and your pay, 
Go the extra mile to find out if you're working for a healthy company. Are you working for a toxic boss? What is that worth to you? Is a commute worth $10,000? Is having some good caregiving policies worth something for you? So I've tried to put on the map that healthcare should be part of the equation when you think about a job. And that's what the study started. And that's what ultimately led to the book. Yeah. And to me, this is such a, what do you call it? Kind of a, a, a dichotomy in, in the fact that we are so focused on the big title, the big paycheck that we do sacrifice our health. You know, men probably more than women uh, because, you know, we're supposed to be tough and unbreakable and I don't need help. And, you know, I'll go to the doctor when it gets really bad. Uh, those kind of statements I've heard from a lot of men. Um, and I'm like, dude, if you have health care, and you have disposable income, there's no excuse. Uh, especially nowadays, you know, one of the great silver linings, if you will, from COVID is that telemedicine is now a thing. Yep. Where before they talked about it and, and because of HIPAA this and HIPAA that, it, it looked like it was going to be a decade in the future. But no, it's amazing. They got rid of all the HIPAA stuff and said, hey, let's make it happen now. So, um, and when I worked in a, in a, corporate environment, uh, there were doctors who, uh, they, they're called concierge doctors, yeah. where they will make appointments at your time frame. So you can see them at six or seven o'clock at night. Or a Saturday. Or a Saturday, yeah, yeah. whatever. So, so if you're one of those individuals, you're a high achiever, but you're sacrificing your health, well, sooner or later, it's gonna come and bite you and you're gonna have that heart attack or that second heart attack. and you know, all that money that you made and all that What's power that you, you had is going to be gone. What's it for? I can't tell many people read my book. A lot of males, Bert, that wrote to me and said, I had a heart attack. I had cancer. It stopped me dead in my tracks and it changed how I felt about everything. And I'm just letting people know it's likely going to happen over your career. If it's not your spouse or your parent or your child, it could be you. So don't wait for it. Just know, make sure that you've looked at the benefits of health in your career. So you've got the flexibility um, to weather the storm when it hits and that it matters. Um, it's funny you mentioned men. A lot of my uh, data when I originally put this study together came from looking at firemen uh, and guys that work on trading floors that were having higher incidence of um, cardiovascular events. So um, it cuts both ways. You're 100 percent right. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and, you know, it's so much easier to take a day or two off now when you're, when you can control it versus, you know, if all of a sudden you're in one of those situations that, again, you, you're suffering a, a heart attack or a stroke or some other major illness. Now you're forced to take a month off and that gets complicated. That gets so complicated. I tell people every year you go out of your way to plan your taxes or plan a vacation. The same time you do that, set up your appointments for the year, your colonoscopy, your mammogram, the dentist, do it for your family. When I do it, I also text my friends. Hey, by the way, I just booked my mammogram. You should do the same thing. Treat it like it's a holiday. Just get the day on the schedule and just go through it. Because if you don't, and it shows up as an emergency, everything's going to be wiped away anyway. So why not book it in advance? Just set the day aside uh, and take care of yourself. As they say, sort yourself out. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this is, you know, it's, it's an, uh, what do you call it? It's, it's, it is something that I notice with stay-at-home moms. They, they give and they give and they give and they give. And, and so by, at the end of the day, 
or at the end of the week or, you know, whatever the time frame is, the end of the month, they're exhausted. They've given so much. Their cup no longer runneth over. Their cup is empty. Right. And now they're having an emotional breakdown or a mental breakdown or whatever. Now mom is sick. So the whole household falls apart. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that if you're a mom, uh, that's a, that's a stressful, important job. If you're a working mom, again, you, you've added more stress. Uh, and a single working mom, it just gets I mean, it just gets compounded. So yes. raising little people is the hardest job in the world. Yeah. <laughs> And you're last and you treat yourself last. And I yes. just think we've got to do a better job to be supportive of that. Yeah, we do. We have to put ourselves first in order to be able to give more of ourselves to people. And, and that, again, you give your, you, you go work out, you take you, like you said, you, you set those medical appointments in advance, even get a massage. Uh, you know, if you can do it weekly, great, or twice a month, at least you do it. You got to, what do they call it? Self-care or self-love? Right. I do that in order to take care of everybody else. Right. Well said. Hopefully people hearing this will pick up on it and maybe book their appointments and take care of themselves. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about this. Back to the book. You're, what was the catalyst? What was the, the inspiration that got you to write the book? Yeah, well, it's kind of a boring catalyst, but it's just the truth. I teach a class at Columbia called The Business of Healthcare where the students walk through the 18% that makes up healthcare GDP, which now everyone is very, very familiar with what, given what's going on with COVID. And so for five years, I would teach this class. And because healthcare is so personal and so political and it's changing all the time, I kept having to update the syllabus. So I decided, why don't I just write a book that covers the 18% of GDP? And while I'm there, why don't I layer on the career that I took through the GDP, 18% of GDP, through the Fortune 500, and also include my study. So the book came together at a necessity, so I was able to use it in my class. And then it kind of had a little further to go because other leaders were interested in, well, tell me about your career and tell me maybe how I can learn something in my career. I had pretty humble beginnings and lost my dad really young. So this wasn't like I was a billionaire writing a book or I was famous. I'm basically a nobody just saying you can do it too. And here's how I did it with some hardship. So I'm kind of the book that's like the raw and real of how to get it done. Um, you know, on a dime, I don't have a lot yeah. of support now. Now I'm doing okay, but I wasn't in the beginning. So I didn't want to tell people things that I knew were not possible, but starting out as a lifeguard and working my way through an Indian reservation and losing, uh, you know, a dad and a sister along the way, um, you know, supported why I care so much about health, but also let's hear it for the underdog that you too can, can rise up and be a CEO or ascend whatever mountain you want. So I tried to be a little bit inspiring to people that maybe needed a little boost. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, all right. So, uh, back to your journey, uh, is there a specific pivot that stands out that maybe was harder than the others or something that surprised you along the way? Yeah, I think the last pivot, getting into private equity was probably the most impossible. I think a lot of money changes hands. It's it's uh, very competitive. It's difficult. A lot of people don't realize how difficult it is. So getting into that field meant that I worked for free for a year. So wow. to take the job no one wants. It's another thing to like take the job that doesn't pay at all. I basically right. put together an internship for a 40-year-old female that was for free, but the connections and the exposure and the investigation and finding my way 
ultimately set me up to find a job at a family office, um, which suited my background in strategy and business building and made for a really great entry into private equity. And as a result, I, you know, I got to do a deal every year I've been in it uh, and have been moderately successful. There's a lot of people that are very, very successful. I'm, I'm okay at it, um, but I would have been terrible at it had I not kind of set it up in a way that fit what I was good at. And so it was a, t it was a really tough pivot, but I must say it's my most favorite job out of all of them. So you have to say now then the year of free work and investigation, nothing ventured, nothing gained. This is a prime example of that because I'm literally doing what I love to do and it's brought everything together into one job. Yeah, I love that. You know, there is such a huge lesson there. Uh, willing to work for free for a year. Uh, most people would say, no, that's not for me. Hey, you know, you know, it. Yeah. What's that? Or you can't afford it. I mean, you can't afford it. Yeah. You got to do it. Yeah. Right. And so, but still, even a lot of people that can't afford it would say, well, no, I'm not, you know, I've done this and I've done that. I'm not going to work for free to anybody, but you looked at it as, Hey, this is a great way for me to learn. And back to, you know, the, one of the takeaways from that, from that, story segment there is the fact that you were able to build relationships that got you to where you are today and everything comes down to those relationships people like to do business and hire people that they know like and trust and what a great way for for people to get to know like and trust you yeah i tell people all the time i literally treated it like i was going back to get an mba because when you go to school you often don't get paid so right. It was a year of education and an internship. And yes, I taught. So I had little jobs around the edge, but like I, I just gave up my basic primary income and was doing a lot of part-time jobs that sounded very reminiscent of when I was in college and high school, but I was willing to do that again in midlife. And I tell people, you can do that. You can reinvent yourself. You're likely going to live to be 82. If you know, if we run the numbers, the, you know, the average right. Hopefully longer. So at 40, you still got halfway to go. So I feel like I don't know why people feel like you can't, you know, reinvent yourself every decade. You have an opportunity to say, you know, I want to try this. I, it's always been a passion. You know, can I do it? And then you have to say, well, what's the sacrifice? Do you need to go back to school? Do you need to work with your partner to say, I'm going to be out of it a little while? My husband was saying, how long are you going to be out of work? Wow, this is really going on a long time. I was like, I'm getting there. I'm getting there, you know? So uh, I think he, and and in that year, to be fair, I also picked like four things I've always wanted to do. I went to Coachella with my best girlfriends and we watched Guns N' Roses. I jumped out of an airplane over Dubai with my mom. Like we did some fun things because I also had the luxury of having the time off. So it was something that you can make a choice to do, but often comes with a sacrifice. But like I said, you make the sacrifice, you take a calculated bet, sometimes the upside can be huge. Sure, sure. You know, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think right there uh, is, is uh, something that a lot of people don't think about. If you're not getting paid, one of the benefits is that you have massive amount of flexibility that you took advantage of. And that to me is something that a lot of people overlook. Uh, they don't ask about that flexibility time. So I think that's a big thing there. Uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, there is a lot of, you know, a lot of information out there about the disparity between men and women as far as pay goes. And so I wanted to get your thought about getting more women into the corner office and executive roles. Is that something that needs to 
be what's what I'm looking for. Uh, I guess promoted needs to be worked on. What is your take on that? Well, I must tell you, honestly, you know, I say it privately to friends and it's probably not now I'm on Facebook saying it. So I guess we're going to just go there. I mean, we're in 2020 and half the population are females. So it's just really weird to me to be on a board where you wouldn't even have one female or in healthcare where women are the primary decision maker, the head of the household, as you just went through, they are like the healthcare end user. So why would you be in healthcare and not have women around? It just, honestly, it just seems like bad business. I don't, it's not like I frown upon people anymore. I'm kind of like, why, why wouldn't you address this? So for me, with that said, I do believe you always pick the best candidate. It doesn't do us women any good when I see another woman fail or worse, they put her in a position that doesn't require a press release or a financial release because she left the company. That actually bothers us women. Like we want to know you got the best woman and you're and you're putting her forward and she's going to be successful. So what I have found is the old chicken and egg. Well, then how do I get a great woman? I don't I don't see many. Well, you're just not looking hard enough. So what I tell people is have a list of your 10 best candidates. So when you get a call for a board or a job and you can't do it, many times you just hang up the phone. No, sorry, Bert, I'm good. I'm all boarded out. I don't like that company. Bye. Instead, say, Bert, here's my list, men and female, and make sure that you're giving the slate to people. Make sure you're doing your job to go out of your way. If I was good enough to get the call, then certainly my recommendation for other women should be taken in the highest regard. So right. I think we all have to do a better job to open up the slate of candidates. It's not a matter of just, well, let's just make sure we have five women here today. That doesn't do anyone any good. Let's make sure you get the right candidates. But I always ask, did you look hard enough? And a lot of times the boards I'm on, men simply found their friends. Right. Oh, Bert's available. He's friends with John. And I always find out Bert and John are on a whole bunch of boards together. So men do this really well. So I think it works both ways. Women can help each other. And also, I think men and women can help more women by making sure you get people on the slate. And it's diversity in every way of the word. Diversity right. by sex, how people look, their religion. Make sure the board doesn't all look like each other. And then you have a bunch of group think. That's not good for shareholder value. So that's how I feel about it. I just feel right. like get the right candidate, but open up your aperture. Make sure you went went the distance to find the very best candidate. And it would be very weird in healthcare if you didn't find a lot of over qualified, diverse candidates. That would be very strange to me. That doesn't make any kind of sense. Yeah, no, and I think you make a real valid point. Uh, absolutely. Women tend to be the healthcare advocate of their home. Uh, and, and they're the ones that are running most of the appointments. So absolutely, there should be a face that they recognize in the board, in the, in, in the office area. Let me ask you this. Uh, as far as... Um, women climbing the corporate ladder, what advice would you give women who, you know, who, who want to climb that ladder, who, who, you know, who are trying to get, uh, for lack of better terms, or trying to make it in a, in quote, in a, in a male culture or something like that. What's your advice? Yeah. It's usually tactical advice. So first I tell people, take as much math as you can mm -hmm. understand how a company makes money. Take a CFO to lunch, find out, 
how a company makes money because it drives most likely what's most important. We always say women don't have enough P&L experience because we don't give it to them. So if you want a P&L job and you want to start getting in the mix on those jobs, you have to understand finance. So it doesn't mean you need to major in finance or you need to go back and get an MBA, but go out of your way to understand how your specific company uh, makes money. Second, take a job no one wants, take a lateral, get the skills you want. Third, you need a sponsor, not a mentor. A mentor gives you good private advice. A sponsor actually sticks up for you and puts you up for the job. They put you in play. Uh, and finally, I often tell people, don't expect balance. Everything's a trade-off. Everything is going to be what you decide is important at that moment in time. It's so difficult to tell people, you're going to have a family, be a VP, you know, hit the six figure salary this year, it's going to be like a mountain. It's going to be long and windy. And maybe there's two or three years where family is the focus for you. Maybe there's another stretch of time where you're going to climb as fast as you can, or maybe you're going to take a pivot and take a different job, or you're going to go back to night school, or you're going to take classes. Just understand that the journey is long and that there's going to be trade-offs. I, I never like to hear you have it all. I don't. I never had it all. I just had what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. The, the having it all concept is, I think, very, very difficult. I think it, uh, it puts unneeded burdens on our backs. I mean, I think that it's, it's easier to do exactly what you said. Hey, I, I have young kids at home, so that's going to be my focus for the next couple of years. As those kids enter school, then you can put on the gas and start climbing that corporate ladder bigger, better, faster. I totally love the idea of taking a CFO to lunch and finding out what the company finds most important. What are the numbers that they look at? I remember many, many, many years ago, uh, one of the best jobs I ever had. Uh, uh, and the reason I, I like that job so much is because the gentleman that I had, that my, my manager, the guy I worked directly under me, he always, uh, for whatever reason, took the time to explain why things work the way they did within the company. And... I got to the point where even if I didn't work that day, I would call him and say, hey, how did the, you know, what numbers, you know, how were the numbers today? It was a rent to own company. And so we had daily numbers that we were, that we, uh, you know, that, that were the needle movers, if you will. So I would call him up at the end of the day and say, hey, what were our numbers? And bottom line is he got a big kick out of that. I was the only one who did that. And, you know, again, people like to hire and work with people they know, like, and trust. 100%. 100%. And if you know the math of the company, that gives you a special place in their heart. It really does. And it gives you an edge. It gives you an advantage. You know what drives earnings. You know what's going to be important. You know what's top of mind for the CEO. So right. you're working on that stuff too. You're, I, I call it being close to the sun. And you're not always going to get the job that's close to the sun. But if you take the CFO to lunch, you're going to certainly know what planets to start hovering around to get closer to the sun. So it's, you know, there's a methodical way to do it. But I've had so many people be in a job for 10 years in a division and they're like, I'm not really going anywhere. And then I, you know, remind them we are in the division that's like 5% of our overall sales. It's awesome, but it's not always the number one board topic. It's kind of been an afterthought. So do it for a while because maybe you're picking up finance skills or marketing skills, or you really love your boss, but then also make sure you reevaluate to say, well, maybe the next job, I want to be a little bit closer to the action. Maybe I want to be where all the growth is in the company. And sometimes where all the growth is in the company is the hardest place to work. Absolutely. And you know, one of the other things I want to throw in there, if your division is 5% or 10% of that company, 
that to me is a department that can either that can be sold. That's a division that is going to be the first to be cut or sold. So you gotta you gotta decide what you want to do with that, but at least have that in the back of your mind that that's a possibility because that's you know you look at GM with Saturn. Saturn was a profit center for them, but it was a small profit center, and and instead of selling it, they just closed it down. Yeah. Right. And we're like, I don't even know, like I've never met anyone that said I was the CEO of that division. So I don't even know what happened to it. Right. So no. yeah. it, can't, it can't always happen in your, you know, in your, um, in your career, but you can try, you know, right. so you can try and make sure you're near those jobs. Absolutely. All right. So you mentioned something that was interesting. You mentioned about the sponsorship, which I love yep. that idea. Somebody who's going to stick up for you. And then you also mentioned a, a mentor. So, you know, when you look back at your whiny little journey, journey there, do you have some mentors? Do you have some mentor stories that kind of stick out for you or, or have you used mentors in the past? Yeah. So I think I have mentors all the time. So like I told you, I believe mentors give you good advice. They give you good coaching. Uh, they're there to maybe oftentimes tell you things you don't want to hear. But most of the promotions that I've gotten or most of the great jobs that I've gotten have come from a sponsor. Somebody that what you said earlier really resonates with me. They see a little bit of you and them or they they're rising, their star is rising. And so they're willing to take you with them. But when you go to them and say, hey, I noticed that there is a job open in the hottest part of the company. It's a director job. Uh, what do you think about that for me? And they say, oh, I think you'd be great, Bert. And then you turn around and say, well, Bert, will you put me up for it? Do I have your endorsement, Bert? That's a sponsor. Bert just got activated. You asked him. He said he agreed and he was willing to use his equity, his title, his name to put you forward. If you don't have those sponsors in your bag, it, it's really, really difficult uh, to get a shot at the job. So you've got I tell people all the time, have as many mentors as you can, but look for opportunities to convert those mentors into sponsors. And then pretty soon a sponsor becomes a lifelong ambassador. And I have a, I have a few of those people where, hey, you should be on Bert's panel or, hey, Meg, you should join this board. I mean, the idea of ambassadorship goes on for the rest of your career. And guess what? I return serve. I'm always being an ambassador for them. People that were once my boss, I'm now turning around to sponsor them. So all boats go higher. So start with mentors. It's got to be genuine. Feel like you have a good relationship, but you've got to make the conversion. You've got to get sponsors and ambassadors or you're not going to get the top jobs. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that distinction. And both of those are so important because as you said, mentors will give you some great advice. And I think that a good mentor is going to tell you those things that you don't want to hear. They're going to get it. They're going to tell you, you're, you know, you screwed up, you know, and, and they're also going to tell you, you you're going to, you're missing these skills, go and get them. Uh, that's some of the best hard things that a mentor does. Yeah. But I love this idea of a sponsorship, somebody or a sponsor who's somebody who's going to advocate for you. And as you said, now you can turn around and do that favor for them because there's that, there's that long-term relationship and you know that, Hey, that person has the skills that that board needs. So let me, let me advocate for him. Let me, let me get him there. Yeah. And to, for me to ask you, Bert, to use your name, I can't really stink. 
I mean, you're not going to put your neck on the line for someone you don't believe in. So, yes. But, and by the way, if Bert says, no, I would not put you up for this, then you either got to take the advice and understand why, or now you realize Bert is not a sponsor. So yeah. it's also a good way to see, you know, a check on your own career and your own capabilities if you're up for something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Megan Fitzgerald, we're out of time real quick. Let's talk about the, uh, one more time about the book called Ascending Davos. I'm going to put a link here in the show notes. You guys can grab the book or buy it wherever your favorite books, wherever you buy your favorite books. Um, Megan Fitzgerald, thank you so much for stopping by today. Yeah. And all the proceeds go to the Harlem uh, Children's Zone, Bert. So I wanted to make sure everybody knew that, that a big part of what Bert and I talked about today is education. It's the great differential and the Harlem Children's Zone does that. And today, $4,000 from the book sales actually went to the Harlem Children's Zone. So thank you. Yeah. Bert. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. That's right. $4,000 went to the Harlem Children's Zone. And you mentioned this before the show started. This is an area where some of these kids don't have uh, the best of nutrition they don't have, sometimes they have no internet access. It's vitally important that these funds get there. So buy the book and help out the kids. Yeah, I'd say in general, right? Anywhere you can help out kids right now that are supposed to be homeschooling and maybe don't have a home and don't have internet and don't have food. Uh, it matters. It matters. We're going to pay for that later on. So thank you, Bert, for delivering that message. You bet. Thank you so much for your time today. Nice to see you. Bye-bye. Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.